On February 2nd, 2019, it was announced that two cemeteries with 40 newly found mummies dating back more than 2,300 years were found in Tuna El Gabel in Egypt. Although the NFL is not quite as old as these mummies, the league will be kicking off the 100th season on August 1st at the Professional Football Hall of Fame game. And during the same weekend, we will see this year's enshrinees inducted to the Hall of Fame. The thing is, these eight men found out they would be in the 2019 class the same day the 40 mummies were found in a city that was referred to in the Pharaonic era as the Blessing or Flood. But as far as the NFL is concerned, this day is known as Selection Saturday. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step off our DeLorean, the date is February 2nd, 2019, and we're in Hotlanta, Georgia, baby. Today is the day before the Super Bowl. I mean, we all know what ended up happening. The Brady-led Patriots would win another Super Bowl, but we're more concerned what happened the day before the Super Bowl. That is Selection Saturday. You see, every Saturday before the Super Bowl, the final Hall of Famers are selected. They are sitting there in their hotel rooms waiting for what we always now know as the knock from the president and CEO of Hall of Fame, David Baker. There's very cool videos out there on YouTube and everywhere where you can see when the players officially find out that they are going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame that year. And side note, this year they created a Ford Hall of Fans, which will be a display at the Hall of Fame Museum, where three fans were inducted into the inaugural class. The Miami Dolphins fan was Roger Avila, Pittsburgh Steelers fan Rick Holman, and Chicago Bears fan Don Wachter. Now, this is going to be something different, and it was pretty cool to see them inducted to the Hall of Fame, too, in a different light, because at the end of the day, let's face it, players, coaches, owners, GMs, and all those kinds of sorts of things, they make the game happen on the field and even off, but without the fans, there is no NFL. So it's pretty cool to see that the NFL in the 100th season is going to start having a Hall of Fame for fans, and let's go ahead and give them a congratulations. But as far as the NFL players, or actually players and contributors, uh, let's go ahead and talk about this year. There's going to be eight heroes of the game that will be inducted to the Hall of Fame. Today, we're going to just briefly talk about four of those members, though, of the 2019 class. We're going to go in alphabetic order, because there's not another way to decide it, and that's just what I chose, man. So let's start this thing off with Mr. Champ, Mr. Champ Bailey. And we're cruising this DeLorean over to June 22nd, 1978, and we landed in Fort Campbell, Kentucky. The reason is because this is when Champ Bailey was born, but he was given the full name of Roland Champ Bailey. I'll be straightforward with you. I never actually knew if Champ Bailey was his given name or what it was, if it was just a nickname. I never actually took the time to look it up, and now we all know that it's Roland Champ Bailey was his full name. And if you didn't know, well, now you know. An unrelated kind of deal here. I have no idea. I don't know how if I can verify this, but I saw in a couple different articles and such that Kanye West was inspired by Champ when he recorded the song Champions. But again, unverified and not even related to football. 
So let's get down to football. His playing size, according to the Hall of Fame, that is, was he was listed at six foot, 192 pounds. And in his 40-yard dash at the Combine, a 4.28 40-yard dash. Now that's one of the fastest times ever recorded at the Combine. So we knew coming out he was going to be a burner. But really a burner is not necessarily what he was only known for. He was a cornerback, a receiver, and a returner at Georgia. But he's going to make his claim to fame shutting down wide receivers for the rest of his career. But to get to the career, we've got to talk about the draft. How did he get in the NFL? Champ Bailey was drafted by the Washington Redskins, 7th overall in the 1999 draft. Which, if you look at the 99 draft and the guys that went before him, I mean, there's McNabb, but there's there were a lot of first-round, what I will call busts. The first pick, Tim Couch to the Browns. Yeah, that did not work out. McNabb, that did. Keely Smith, nope, didn't work out. We had some sprinkled in there with Edgerin James and Ricky Williams. Yeah, King's Ransom for a dude that likes to smoke dope on the side of the weekends. Let's just say, overall, there were a lot of busts in the 99 draft. Sure, there were some great players, and Torrey Holt's another one that came out. But Mr. Champ Bailey very possibly left the biggest impact coming out of the 99 draft. And what did he do his rookie year? He was successful at the start. He started all 16 games, and he was considered a top defender at that time right away. He had five interceptions. One of them was for a touchdown. 19 passes defended. One sack with 66 total tackles. Like I said, he was impressive from the jump. But not even just from the jump. On his very first regular season game, he had an interception at home against the Cowboys. And then a game against the Cardinals on October 17th, 1999. Yes, that's his fifth regular season game ever. He recorded three interceptions, including one for a touchdown. He was the youngest player to ever have three interceptions in a game. With the Redskins, he would have a good successful career, of course, from 1999 to 2003. But then, one of the biggest trades in NFL history would happen prior to the 2004 season. But let's set up the story here. I saw reports where Bailey had just been offered a nine-year, $55 million deal. That's pretty big at the time. I mean, not anything like it is today, but nine years, that's a whole lot of, that's a whole lot of years for $55 million. Now, I don't know how much guarantee it was. I didn't look into that and everything, but he turned it down. So the Redskins, they franchise him. Joe Gibbs just announced his return to the franchise. This dude wanted a running back. So we've got a running back also that had some kind of things going on with not being on the same team, possibly. Mr. Clinton Portis of the Denver Broncos. In his first two years, he rushed for at least 15 yards. 15? Let's scratch that. 1,500. Yes, his first two seasons, he ran for 1,500 yards. But the problem was, he had these off-the-field antics. And the coach, Mike Shanahan, now this did not meet his expectations. The last straw was week 14 against the Chiefs during the fourth quarter. Now, mind you, this is the Chiefs with, at the time, Priest Holmes. He was a beast, and he was just the dude for fantasy football. But Clinton Portis was on his tail coming after him, and like I said, 1,500 yards the first two seasons. Clinton Portis had just ran for 218 yards, five touchdowns. So he's on the sidelines, like I said, fourth quarter. He pulls out this gold championship belt. He wears it to let everybody know he's now the top dog running back in the league. 
And if I remember, maybe I, I want to say I had both players on my team somehow and talk about sweet fantasy football success. But that's not what we're here about because we want to talk about Champ Bailey. Like I said, dealing with the whole Joe Gibbs and all that kind of thing, wanting to run him back, get rid of my guy, Champ Bailey, who's at the time he didn't know it maybe, but a future Hall of Famer. A trade happens. Portis to the Redskins. Champ Bailey plus a second rounder to the Broncos. Now, at the turn of the century, running backs were a lot more valuable than they are now. And the running backs are starting to creep back up again, especially with the multifaceted running backs. But you'd pay a king's ransom compared to nowadays. So, Champ Bailey, a future Hall of Famer, plus a second rounder, although Portis was highly successful and productive in Washington, I'd go ahead and say the first ballot Hall of Famer won that trade. Plus, you have a second rounder to boot. In all, Champ Bailey would have 215 career games. He would start all but three of those games. For a statistical stat line of 908 total tackles with 812 solo, 52 interceptions for 464 yards, and four touchdowns. Three sacks, six fumble recoveries, with a whopping 203 passes defended. But January 14th, 2006. Now, this is probably his most famous play for, you know, his crazy highlight career. This is a divisional round game against the Patriots. His most famous, again, like I said, well, maybe we could say infamous play, too. He set an NFL record. It's the longest non-scoring play in history. He intercepts the pass in the end zone, proceeds to run it back for 100 yards, but then he gets tackled on the one-yard line. And the crazy thing is, even though he's a first ballot Hall of Famer, I think he should be just a little bit embarrassed about that play because he slowed down near the end and he got ran down from behind and pushed out of bounds. Now, I'll leave a link in the show notes to this and other plays, which, uh, by the way, you can get to the show notes through your podcast player or by heading to thefootballhistorydude.com. Again, that's thefootballhistorydude.com. Also, while you're at it, I ask that you subscribe for free to this show by mashing that little subscribe button on your podcast player of choice. That way you get the hottest, well, freshest out the press episodes each and every week. But let's get back to the champ. Champ Bailey, that is. You know, for extra credit, this dude had 12 Pro Bowl selections, which were the most by a defensive back in NFL history. He was named to five All-Pro teams, selected for the NFL All-Decade Team of the 2000s, and also selected for the Broncos' 50th Anniversary Team. All of these accolades, probably known best for being a professional, a hyper-fishing at the job, but you never knew it, because he wasn't one of those showboat-type dudes. You know, Darrell Rivas had Rivas Island. Richard Sherman probably talks trash in his sleep and still talking trash to the kids running by on the kindergarten playground. Deion Sanders, he was, well, Prime time. I mean, that's enough said. Prime time, Deion Sanders. But Bailey, he just kept chugging along and becoming one of the best cornerbacks to ever put on a helmet. And to finish, here's what Drew Brees had to say about Chan Bailey when he was in his prime. You just knew every time we're going to go up against this guy, I cannot make a mistake because he will make a play. Bailey's area of field was always considered a no-throw zone, a term reserved for only a few elite cornerbacks. It was just don't even think about it. It's not worth it, and whereas a lot of other good cover corners have no interest in tackling, he's the exact opposite. He'll come up and hit you. He prides himself on being a good football player, not just a good cover guy. 
that sets him apart from the rest. And this is what Champ Bailey and many NFL fans, especially Denver Broncos fans, would call a bittersweet transition into another Broncos legend. That's their longtime owner, Pat Bolin. Now, taking the DeLorean back just a little bit further, we're talking about watching him being born on February 18, 1944, in Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin. He was a successful lawyer in his lifetime, executive of the family's oil and gas firm, also a real estate mogul. Unfortunately, like I said, a bittersweet, he just passed away a little bit more than a month ago on June 14th after a lengthy fight with Alzheimer's disease. And you never want to see it happen, but it's just kind of a bummer that it would be basically less than two months before being inducted to the Professional Football Hall of Fame. Now, like I said, though, he was the owner of the Denver Broncos for quite some time. He purchased the team in 1984, officially named the majority holder on March 23rd, 1984. But let's back that DeLorean up a little bit, because a month earlier, you know, prior to purchasing the Denver Broncos and becoming the majority owner, he finished 135th out of 1,100 entrants in what is called the Ironman Triathlon in Hawaii. And what's that, you ask? Well, I'll tell you what. It's a consecutive 2.4-mile ocean swim, followed by a 112-mile bike ride, and then 26.2-mile run, without stopping. <laughs> Talk about, holy cats, man, just forget about that. That's not me, brah. I'll stick to, let's, uh, maybe swimming in the ocean for like a little bit, just hanging out. I don't know. But that is a lot of tread to put on the body. But that type of fight gives you an idea of what he was like as the owner of the Denver Broncos, one of the most successful franchises in NFL history. And he ended up being a CEO until 2014, when unfortunately he had to step down because of that illness. Now, according to Forbes, he purchased the team for $78 million there back in 1984. And as of last September, the team was valued at $2.7 billion with a B dollars. So you're saying that this dude took them to astronomical um, success rate as far as profitability. And that goes into saying how he was ultimately one of the most successful owners in sports history. And it wasn't just from the value of the dollar, which ultimately is how you're judged if you want to talk about from the business perspective. But during his tenure, the team had the second highest winning percentage of any NFL team with a little bit over a 60% win rate for 327 wins, 215 losses, and one tie. Now, I'm not going to tell you what that one tie is. I want you guys all to fight and scrap and see who can be the first one to talk about it. But he also had the third highest winning percentage in professional American sports at that time. And under his time since 84, 21 winning seasons. So as a Lions fan, you know what I'm saying. I'm like, come on, man, just, just give me a few. But whatever, let's move on. 13 division titles during his time for nine conference championships, winning seven of them to move on to seven Super Bowls. And of those seven Super Bowls, they won three of them. Again, it's like, Lions fan, hey, what the deal? But I'm not going to sit and cry baby about it. I'm going to talk about everything else because for the Broncos, ever since week one of 1970, Every game has been sold out, and most of that time was under Pat Bolin, who included over 400 straight games under his tenure where they would sell out. 
Bolin was also the only owner in NFL history with 300 victories in his first 30 years of ownership. So yeah, I'd say that's not a bad feat to have. He was inducted to the Denver Broncos Ring of Fame in 2015, but also he was inducted to the Colorado Sports Hall of Fame. So not just as a Broncos owner, though. I mean, he helped other leagues get started. He helped other teams. He helped the NFL as a whole. He also helped outside the league with charities and the city and all kinds of other sorts of things. As far as, like I said, helping the NFL out, he was a key figure in securing the league's labor and TV contracts, which, as we know, is a lot of money for the league. So that is definitely a very highly responsible role. He was also the co-chair of the NFL Management Council Executive Committee from 2001 to 2011. He had the prestigious honor of being the chair of the NFL Broadcast Committee, which under his leadership, Bowen was responsible for the NFL's $18 billion TV contract, which was the most lucrative single-sport contract in history. Also, former Commissioner Paul Tagliabue pointed out that Bolin was the only owner during the 80s and 90s to be involved in four major areas of the NFL, which were television, labor, stadium development, and international play. So, let's just say, like I said, he's not just an owner. He was an advocate for the business of the game, and probably a factor in why under his tenure, the Broncos were number one in nationally televised games before the 2018 season at 344 games. He also had a league high primetime games of 160. To give you an idea of his mentality as far as running an organization, the Broncos website said that he was frequently quoted as saying the word rebuilding is not in his vocabulary, and that he even had training camp tradition every year predicting the 19-0 season for the Broncos with a Super Bowl victory at the end of it each and every year. This is one reason why he was typically referred to as the ultimate player's owner, often simply referred to as Mr. B. I'll give you an example. Um, One reason why the players just had such an affinity for this guy. You see, at the end of 2006 season, Darrant Williams was gunned down just some crazy stupid story why. You know, I just can't stand it when people just reckless with weapons and stuff like that. But I'll tell you what, this event unfortunately did happen. And Mr. B would help the Denver Police Department find his killer. He also paid for the funeral. And he paid for all of the Broncos organization because it was like a family to go to Fort Worth, Texas for the funeral. And to cap off Pat Bolin, this was a common quote from Mr. B about how he ran the organization. I want to be number one in everything. That's it. Simple yet effective. Which helps us transition into another executive, the second contributor for the 2019 class. His name is Gil Brandt, and many of you still see this guy on TV all the time. But let's go back to 1934, March 4th in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This is when he was born, and he would end up turning into a long-time contributor in the NFL. He started his career with the Dallas Cowboys in 1960, the first year of the Cowboys' existence. He was part of this legendary executive trio that would turn the boys into America's team. Gil Brandt is the vice president of player personnel, Tex Schramm is the general manager, and Tom Landry is head coach. Brandt joins these other two guys in the Hall of Fame this year to complete that trifecta. Overall, he had a 29-year career with the Cowboys. He was fired in 1989 by Jerry Jones when he kind of purchased the team and just cleaned house, but he had a very successful entire career coming up to that. 
The Cowboys expansion, like I said, 1960. The Pro Football Hall of Fame bio states that he helped turn the team into America's team just seven years later. Now, from 1966 to 1985, the Cowboys had 20 consecutive winning seasons. Now, that's just not from coaches or players hustling or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. You had to build a team. And Gil Brandt was at the heart of it all. Now, during his time, they also appeared in five Super Bowls, winning two of them. As far as players drafted, he oversaw eight Cowboys players that are now in the Hall of Fame. His very first pick, his very first pick ever, which was in 1960, was defensive tackle Bob Lilly. Yep, he's in the Hall of Fame. Now, his final ever first-round draft pick in 1989, he went by a name, you might know this guy, Troy Aikman. Yeah, that guy. Of this list of eight, it's also kind of worthwhile to point out that two of these men were seventh rounders, tackle Ray Wright and receiver Bob Hayes. And the other one was a tenth rounder. You may or may not have heard of this name. He was quarterback Roger Staubach. Sure, he was great and all right, 29 years, getting lucky. But that was not necessarily the case. It wasn't because he was a lucky just drafter. You know, having a 29 career, you got to draft a lot of players but it was his innovative approach that revolutionized scouting and the way that we have a management system in the NFL, basically standardizing and giving an operating procedure that many teams still use today. He was the first one to use computers for scouting and talent evaluations. He was also the first to use psychological tests to be able to evaluate what's going on between the noggin, you know, between their ears during the games to determine if they would be able to handle the pressure. And, of course, the names come to mind. Roger Staubach, Troy Aikman. Oh, yeah, sure. Let's just say that that worked out. Now, under Gil Brandt's tutelage, the process for evaluating players in the Cowboys organization would ultimately lead to the NFL Scouting Combine. So, yeah, I'd say he made a pretty heavy mark on the NFL. And, speak of the NFL, he started working for NFL.com as a historian and player analyst in 1995. And he's still out there churning content. And you can go ahead and look at him and all of his work on NFL.com right now if you want to. I'll leave some links there in the show notes for you. But next, let's get back to the modern players. The modern era players, that is. Going to go back to February 27th, 1976 in Torrance, California for the birth of a one Tony Gonzalez. Yeah, this dude turned into a behemoth of a man with a playing weight listed at 6 foot 5 inches and 250 pounds. He was the 13th overall draft pick from the University of California in 1997, and he was drafted by the Kansas City Chiefs. Now this guy, he did not have a short career. He would play in the NFL for 17 years and considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest, tight end of all time, depending on who you talk to. He retired as the all-time leader in catches, yards, and touchdowns by a tight end. But he didn't have just this wonderful, great career and it took him a while. He had an impact right away as a rookie, and then also his second season was very good. But his breakout year, though, his third year, even the great Tony G waited for his breakout party in third year, just like uh, we talk about in fantasy football all the time. Well, that year, though, he led the Chiefs in receiving with 76 catches, 849 yards, and 11 touchdowns. This earned him the Pro Bowl nod for the first time, but mm, let's just say he would uh, be there a few more times he would go to a total of 14 Pro Bowls out of the 17 tries in his career. He was also named the All-Pro for the first time that season, which he would have a total of seven times in his career. That's pretty good. But the next season at the turn of the century in 2000, 
it would be even better. He had 93 catches for 1,203 yards and 9 touchdowns. Now, the only season that he had less than 59 receptions was his rookie year, which that's very typical for a tight end. He had more than 80 catches 8 different times, and in 2004, his team leaned on him more than ever. He led the entire league in receptions for 102, and he also surpassed the 1,000-yard barrier. His final career stats are a whopping 1,325 receptions, 15,127 yards for 111 touchdowns. And at the time of his retirement, the receptions, that's second most, and his yards were fifth most. Tony G had the most seasons with at least 50 receptions, which were 16 times. And he also had the most consecutive games with the reception, 211. Now, Larry Fitzgerald probably passes him for receptions this year, but depending on how long Antonio Brown plays, Tony should stay in third place for quite some time, and I'd say his fifth yards is pretty safe for a while too, depending on, again, Mr. One Antonio Brown. But let's just say he should stay in top 10 for touchdowns for a very long time as well. Going back to the teams though, after 2008, he left the Chiefs as an unrestricted free agent to sign with the Atlanta Falcons, and in 2012 with the Falcons, this was the only time, unfortunately for a guy with such a great career, it was his only time to make it to a conference championship game. They unfortunately for him lost to the 49ers 28-24, but statistically, he had a very good performance. He had 8 catches for 78 yards and a touchdown. And even though it sucks that he never made it to the Super Bowl and he only made it to the conference game once, he was an obvious member for the NFL all-decades teams of the 2000s. And overall, he was just a stand-up, straight-up good dude, just like most of the other Hall of Famers out there. I mean, he was big in his community back then, and he is now. And you can also see him on TV and various different you know, TV shows and NFL networks and such. But, uh, but with that being said, this brings us to the end of the episode, where I shared with you four of the eight 2019 Hall of Fame members. And I hope that you enjoyed this episode and were able to gain some knowledge nuggets for these four dudes. Now, next week, we're going to go ahead and take a look at the other four of the eight 2019 Professional Football Hall of Fame class inductees. But for now, dudes, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going... We don't need roads.